And thanks to Cry Malt, this is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News. And as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague and regular co-conspirator, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. G'day, Matt. G'day, listeners. Not too sure about co-conspirator. Well, you know, we, we we plan lots of things. Oh, okay, that's yeah. So not yeah. So not in the, in terms of like a conspiracy kind of thing. I'm just thinking based on uh, Area 51. I mean, Episode 51. <laughs> episode 51, which seems to have you know drawn lots of mystery and um, you know varying points of view and and that sort of thing. We've had a fair bit of feedback. Yeah, look, and and it's interesting. Um, you know, you, you never know when you launch these things out into the ether what the feedback's going to be and. Uh, it has been, to be honest, it's been a little bit quieter than I might have thought, given you know I'd seen how much discussion there was on the Crafty Pint, um, and you know just on our website uh, there, there wasn't too much on the post about the blog itself, but there was a bit of discussion around the fundraiser for the core brewing casualties uh, that James Atkinson, Bruce News editor James Atkinson, posted, um, where you know there were some comments such as uh, somebody by the name of Pete Smith. That may or may not be an alias. Uh, you know, questioned a fundraiser for bad business decisions, and I believe that you've had some uh, similar comments. Uh, yeah, well, Peter Hull uh, from Sweetwater Brewing contacted publicly left a message. Um, they were running a, um, a fundraiser for the victims of the tragic um, earthquake in Nepal, uh, which which they'd sort of you know, and well done to them to to get it up and running and and organise so quickly. Uh, and Peter sort of pointed out that you know perhaps that was a, a more worthy cause. I, I you know. There were worthy causes and there were worthy causes. I know the the organisers um, and I know Fiona uh, from um, uh, Rutherglen was um, was behind you know teeing up the the fundraiser at a temple on on Saturday and that was organised you know sort of long before and I, look you can you can probably you can have both. We'll leave it at that. Yeah, and look, I mean, I I, I can understand people saying that. I think um, you know, uh, Pete, uh, sorry, um, Phil Cook from New Zealand. Uh, Made the comment that he surprised us. Sahi was mixed up and you know uh, mixed up in all of this. Thought they might have better due diligence practices. But I guess to make that comment um, is a little bit unfair to the smaller brewers who you know might be suggesting that they went into it a little bit uh, blindfolded or you know, without doing due diligence. I think I guess that was the uh, yeah that that was the issue. It was very hard to predict or expect it. Um, some people made. Comments that, uh, you know, comments on the interview himself that they felt that Michael wasn't accepting full responsibility or was blaming a lot of other people. And that was why we ran the uh, interview as its, as its own thing so people could hear his words and form their own view about it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, look, I don't know that there's too much to say. You know, we're still very hopeful. We've both spoken to a couple of the people involved. And, uh, you know, it's very sad when we see anybody who is trying to get a business started um, have this happen. And I guess... The, the, the one thing that should come out of it is that it's a salutary lesson to everybody that, you know, um, stay on top of business. And whilst on one hand, it's a fantastic industry where people are willing to support each other the way they did with the fundraiser. At the same time, you know, it, it is a business and you need to keep an eye on, uh, you know, things at you know, every stage of the game. Yeah. No, I've had several um, contacts from brewers and people in the in the industry just sort of... Um commending us on on putting that side of the story and following the story through um you know sort of were sentiments to that effect and um and like you say it's it, it, it's worth saying worth putting out there that yeah um whilst we're in this growth lots of different opportunities will arise um both for you know in in retail and in supply and installation of of kit and all sorts of various bits and pieces and, and it's worth just sort of remembering that you need to go into it carefully 
particularly at the moment with the industry so dynamic and we've got a lot of new players entering the, the brewing sphere and we're seeing malt suppliers uh, spring up we're seeing uh, you know beer distribution companies both uh, you know mail order and yep. uh, you know a lot of little retailers that you wouldn't want the takeaway message to only deal with people that have got an established track record um, because that would automatically preclude uh, you know exciting new players from entering the the, the market um, but at the same time you know people who have been around for a long time you know have been around for a long time for a reason. So yeah, the story probably serves more to, um, I guess, prepare potential suppliers into the market to make sure that they've got all their ducks in a row before they start sort of taking deposits and you know have a look at their business plan and, and all that sort of thing. And communicate, which seems to be one of the big things that came out of that as well. You know, communicate with your suppliers, but also, you know, communicate with the businesses that you're dealing with. Yep. Anyway, um, it, it's all very easy to, to make these comments uh, when you're not involved. But anyway, today we've got a uh, another one guest uh, wonder. Oh, what a wonderful guest! Thank you, um, Jamie Cook, one of the three uh, faces or founders of uh, Stone and Wood Brewing. Um, we Jamie has, as we said last week, has a long history in the Australian craft brewing industry. He's worked for both the. Uh, two big Australian breweries. He has worked in marketing, uh, building some very successful brands. And now he is also a founder of Stone and Wood, which is one of the very successful Australian independent craft breweries. Um, we, we're not so much speaking to Jamie about Stone and Wood today, although it's impossible to uh, talk about the craft beer industry without bringing it back a little bit. But Jamie, we're using his wealth of insight um, into the market to, to throw a couple of questions to him. And I, I guess... Uh, you know, Jamie is a great conversation to have in these situations because he is so um, knowledgeable about the industry. But at the same time, he's uh, you know a businessman with his own business relationships, and you know is inside the industry, and maybe a little bit difficult for him to comment on some of the topics that uh, we might want to canvas. But uh, even so, it's, it's a great interview. So um, we'll go straight into speaking to Jamie, and I hit him with uh, the, the news overnight that there's been a number of UK craft brewers who have yet again had a crack at defining craft beer. Yeah, and I, I think uh, the interesting part of that is what's actually gone, what's obviously going on behind it is that there's probably some uh, desire from a number of the smaller brewers over there to actually form a sort of more future-looking um, Brewers organisation by the sound of it or industry industry body and therefore they've um, drafted up that's a proposed definition on how they're going to um, recruit members to that association. That's probably the way I picture that. What's the uh, situation in the UK with the craft beer? We've got Camera, obviously, which is one of the, the world's most successful consumer organisations. There is a, a larger brewers guild. Is there a body representing smaller craft brewers at the moment? Yes, there is CBA, which is a small independent brewers association. Um, so you would think those guys would cover most of the needs of the craft brewers over there, but obviously they're saying that that body isn't, whether it's future looking enough or not just, just doing the job that they're hoping to achieve by um, by what they're doing with this. I think is it the Brewers Union of Brewers or something, I think they're, I think they're calling it. The UCB, yes, the... United Craft Brewers, and it's uh, Jasper Cuppage from Camden Town Brewery and Logan Plant, founder and brewer at Beavertown Brewery in the UK, made the announcement during a panel discussion. We've linked to that on our uh, Facebook page. We'll probably link to it in the show notes. Have you had a chance to read the um, definition, Jamie? Do you think that it's got any application to the, the, the local scene? 
Uh, I, I think I think what they're striving for, you know, in terms of uh, you know trying to identify um, brewers who are probably true to uh, true to the art and 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 operating authentically, probably the couple of key things that I got out of what they're talking about with the definition. Um, but I think uh, it's an interesting thing because. Um, I think at the Craft Brewers Conference in uh, Portland just a few weeks ago, Charlie Papazian in his opening remarks talked about you know the, the importance of defining yourself, um, and you know, and I think I think there's been some rumblings in the U.S. about craft breweries not really concerned too much more about the definition because you know I think it's actually becoming very grey. And um, I, I, my view is that I think. You know, if if an association wants to have a definition or a criteria that are, that allows members to that association, that's one thing. But I think I don't think it's very consumer focused. You can't control the term craft; it's gone way beyond that. Therefore, why would you want to define yourself by something you can't control? Even so, uh, and it, it sounds like that's the way that many in the, in the industry are going, and realizing that whilst craft beer was helped and kicked along and inspired. Um, and the current popularity was ignited by some of the things that have traditionally been part of the definition. As craft beer has increasingly penetrated the mainstream, that definition is coming to be owned by a broader range of consumers who seem to care less about some of those political aspects of ownership and more about the quality and what it represents um, in terms of value to them. Um, the but even so, that's where some of the definitions or elements of this definition seem to be relevant to a lot of Australian craft brewers, particularly um, this notion of honest. Um, and I'll, I'll step back a bit. The definition of craft currently reads, a craft brewer is authentic, um, which looks at uh, brews all beer at original gravity and owns and operates a craft brewer based um, in the UK. They're honest. The place where the beer is brewed is clearly listed on the beer and they're independent. Less than 25% of the craft brewery is owned or controlled um, by an alcohol beverage industry member that is not itself a craft brewer. So looking at the aspect of honesty, um, one of the big discussions we've had in the Australian brewery, uh, brew, uh, craft brewing scene over the last 12 months is provenance. Um, and it's something that you guys have, in a sense, led with uh, at, Stone of Wood, at Stone and Wood where you have never been able to keep up with the demand for your product, but you've also made a conscious decision that you are going to control every drop um, that comes out under your name. Um, and a number of other breweries have expanded uh, without um, hold, you know, keeping that um, sort of uh, purity. But it, is the need to define yourself based on where you brew an important part of our local brewing scene? Um, oh, there's a number of questions within that statement, Matt. Um, sorry. <laughs> yes, sorry. Um, I think I think the first thing, the point, one of the points you made there was um, the craft definition as used by consumers. I, I don't think there's many consumers out there that actually have a definition of craft beer wandering around in their head um, and therefore make decisions based on what they consider to be the definition of craft beer. I think um, the, the term is very much an insider's term or maybe... Um, a very highly engaged consumer uh, term, but at the end of the day, the majority of drinkers that are drinking what you guys might call craft beer uh, are doing so because they've got a relationship or they've built up a, a relationship with the breweries that they want to buy beers from. Um, and and therefore, it's how each brewery defines itself, I think, that's important. At the end of the day, that's the only thing you can, can control is... Um, 
is, is, is what you're focused on doing and what you believe in and, and, and why you do what you do. And therefore consumers buy into that. Um, and yeah, you know, we've taken a very uh, authentic and pure approach, but that's, that's, that's our philosophy. That's, that's, that's us. That doesn't mean to say it's right or wrong for everybody else. That's just uh, the way we th- do things at Stone and Wood. Um, but yeah, there are other ways of brewing beer. There are other places to brew beer and different philosophies on approaching it. And that's up to every different business, I suppose, to take their, their own uh, approach to it. When you say that consumers don't really have a view of craft beer themselves, you don't think that, um, you know, I often compare it to when you go into Coles and you pick up the carton of eggs and, you know, there's a happy little chicken sitting surrounded by green fields um, and in, in big um, graphic illustration. And when you read the fine print, um, you know, caged eggs. Um, you, you don't think that there's an element of that um, in, in brewers using craft beer, to, trying to, uh, you know, for, for big brewers to make themselves appear, appear small and friendlier than some of the multinational uh, brewing organisations did, and, and conversely, it's a you know staking out a claim by small independent brewers that separates them from big brewers. Is some of these you know indefinable um, notions of you know being small and there's actually a you know a smiling brewer who owns the company stirring the mash tun, um, all, all wrapped up in it as well. You don't you don't think that that's commonly held by most consumers to to some extent. Uh, I think the vision and imagery and the association you're talking about are, but the word craft and and a definition of craft based on some industry bodies' meaning of it isn't what's floating around in their head. Um, and that's where I think this the discussion around craft tends to get very lost because craft means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And yeah, people people may position themselves as something that they're not. Um, but they don't, have, they don't necessarily use the word craft to do that. It's just the way they talk about themselves, design their packaging, et cetera, or whatever, the, the brand story. And, and consumers these days, some of them will uh, look further into that and read the fine print um, and make decisions based on that. Others may not. But, uh, but I don't think uh, to the consumer, a lot of these people that you're portraying that be putting forward that necessarily positioning themselves as craft don't necessarily put a label on themselves as being craft. Therefore, I'm trading off some equity that other people have created. It, it's interesting you say that because I, I look at um, you know, spreading across the, uh, the the craft industry, and uh, um, for example, we've seen Coles um, through their Steamrail brand into the market with their own uh, beer label. Um, they're very careful not to have Coles' name associated with it, and. You know, I regularly walk into Coles-owned supermarkets that are selling it, and I always ask the uh, staff member where they uh, where, where it comes from. And you know, almost invariably, I'm told that it comes from a small craft brewery. It's never from Asahi's Brewery in Laverton. Um, last Friday, I was told it came from a little brewery in Hawthorne. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, there aren't any little breweries in Hawthorne. Um, but they often say that it comes from the same brewery that makes Mountain Goat, for example, with a portion of Mountain Goat's production uh, coming from uh, the, the same brewery. And so to me, it looks like Coles is trying to draw an equivalence um, to Mountain Goat by saying, well, they come from the same brewery, um, and yet their uh, product is often priced you know, 20 to $25 a carton uh, cheaper than the Mountain Goat one. Um, and then you've also got the craft industry who, you know, the, the, the sort of inverted commas craft people who are inside the, the, the bubble or inside the tent and know the history of mountain goat and so saying, well, no, no matter what mountain goat does, they're a very you know, important part of the craft industry. And even though their beer is made at uh, Asahi, they're still a craft brewer. 
um, which to my mind um, allows uh, Coles to say, well, our beer is craft just like mountain goats is craft, which means there's equivalence between us and stone and wood. When I think if you ask most people and you explain the stories of most people, even casual consumers see a fairly clear distinction between the not necessarily the liquid, but certainly the business proposition or the um, underlying values that they're investing in when they buy that beer. Yes, um, there are certainly consumers out there that are very highly engaged in what they buy. They're conscious. They're very conscious in their consumption, and and they will soon they will find out the truth behind a brand at some point in time and make decisions accordingly. I, I, I don't refute that, but there are a lot of consumers that don't. Um, at the end of the day, they'll make a decision based on, well, that's a pretty label or um, that beer tastes okay or it's at a good price. Yeah, and, and I take all of those things, but I, I think that they're not engaged enough to research and you know, sort of stand in the Dan Murphy's Googling provenance. But do you think that they, um, you know, I find that invariably when you say, oh, that's Steamrail brand, did you know that it's owned by Coles? They're very surprised and it lessens the brand for them somewhat. So they may not be engaged enough to... Um, do the research themselves, but at the same time, they're very disappointed and feel a little bit cheated when they find out that what it, what what it purported to be isn't what it was. And you know, does does that hurt the whole industry when they feel that way? Oh, look, I think I think you know, if you step back from all of the conversation around craft and what isn't and what isn't, etc. Um, I think if you look at beer in general, it's gone from what was a domestic pursuit back in the medieval times. It, it was commercialised and then industrialised and then corporatised, globalised and then sort of commoditised, I guess. Uh, and that commoditisation is probably what you're seeing in things like retail brands. Uh, I think I think one liquor store I was in recently had a big pile of clean skin beer sitting on the floor. Um, you know, and then there's other breweries out there selling draft beer kegs to outlets and letting them brand it as they see fit. So. I think there's certainly, you know, all the challenges of an industry that's being commoditised um, uh, out there in the marketplace. Um, but at the same time, what we're seeing is massive growth in brewers who are focused on doing the right thing and being authentic. Um, and in fact, most of them can't keep up with demand. So there's obviously some consumers out there who uh, are very conscious in the way they buy beer uh, and are tapping into the breweries that they um, appeal that appeal to them at the mo- and I, I guess that's where we're looking at at the moment we're in a rapid expansion phase where um, you know I, I, I think that you could probably draw some comparisons to uh, a, a property boom where suddenly everyone that owns real estate is a property developer because they're sitting back counting their riches and you know you can renovate and sell because the market's growing and it's once things start to plateau off uh, a little bit that you know underlying value really matters um we're in that phase where there is great interest in craft beer it's uh, there's a growing market there's growing demand for it once that demand starts to taper off if it does um will brand start to matter more to smaller brewers I think brands matter from now for any brewer. Um, otherwise, we'd be um, otherwise we'd be selling beer in plain bottles um, and unbat- unmarked taps. Um, so brands obviously matter. Um, so that's how people that's how people make a decision over one beer or another. You know, without a brand, um, unless you're trying all those unbranded taps or unmarked bottles, 
um, and like find one you like, you never really know which one that was <laughs> to buy it a second time. So, so certainly brands do matter. Um, I, I think in terms of the growth of the market, I can see it continuing to go. You know, I know there's some talk about a bubble and what have you, and even in the US there's talk of a bubble. Um, the way I the way I look at the market these days is that I think I think the bubble is certainly there in the beer market, but it's not the craft bubble. It's actually the big global uh, brewers who are sitting in the bubble. Um, that bubble, their bubble's not going to burst, but it's certainly got some serious leaks. Um, and you know, it's dying a death of a thousand cuts because they've consolidated to a point where they're so far away from what the consumer wants that it, they're finding it very hard to work out how to get back there. I'm just trying to reconcile um, some of the things you've said uh, that on one hand consumers don't really matter but branding you know consumers don't really care on one level but then branding does matter um, and you know l- looking at that element of a craft beer bubble I look at um, you know at, at, where when you've got um, large breweries who are entering the craft beer space and you know making a, a range of lighter golden ale we've seen Coke enter with the Yenda range um, you know, we've seen Coles and Woolworths both have their beers, all of which are being sold at a significantly cheaper price and with greater uh, reach and uh, you know distribution than a, a lot of the small independent breweries that are going. Um, and I've and then comparing that with much more expensive beer and arguably in some cases uh, better beer, but again that that that's from small breweries. That's a very disputable thing. Um, you, you don't think that. You know that whole concept of unit cost um, is going to, uh, and commodification of craft beer is going to happen as well. And unless you can justify a higher price for your product, that a lot of breweries are really going to struggle once consumers' excitement starts to wane, and, and with it their willingness to, to to travel two or three suburbs to find you know exotic little beers or pay a you know, considerable premium for what they regard as authentic craft. Uh, I think price is always uh, an important thing. Well, it's actually not so much price, it's value. Beer drinkers make decisions on value based on their their love of their love of the brewer's beer or their brand, or uh, and and price is a is a element of that. Um, and those two things combined, um, certainly value comes to the table. Um, I, I think I think that. I think that people, uh, apart from the small guys who appear to be paying in the space that you're talking about, um, understand that, um, yeah, they're going to have economies of scale, but there's also there's also a margin in the market that they would be wanting to maintain. Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't think I don't think we're going to see some crash in prices that um, makes a whole bunch of small brewers unprofitable. That short term, you don't see it as a, a longer term thing, and you know, I just sort of draw parallels with, for example, the international uh, premiums or what were once known as international premiums that are these days only selling at a slightly higher um, premium to mainstream beer, and um, they're, they're they're not quite regarded in the same way as they were, you know, even five, six, seven years ago. Um, you're talking about imported imported brands such as uh, sorry, you're talking well, international well, license brands such as Heineken and Peroni and Bex and Stella. Yeah, well, I think I think the difference there is that the brewers who uh, used to import those beers now own them. So um, you know, I think I think they, they they look at those brands differently. Certainly, certainly the pricing has come down, but I think but I think the pricing premium in the market versus mainstream beer was 
probably in Australia at, I think, almost taking the piss point. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges. I, I think, I think, in terms of your pricing around the small brewers, yeah, the, the bigger guys face pose some risk in terms of uh, in terms of having lower price points out there. But it's up to the smaller guys to build stronger value in their and equity in their brands to um, withstand that. Um, and conversely, there's probably small brewers out there that are pricing at the very, very high end of the market, um, and probably potentially doing as much uh, injustice to the to the category as well by sort of yeah putting prices that are probably a little you know to some extent um, over and above what people would normally see as good value for any beer, no matter how good it is. Which I guess brings us back to that uh, question, um, convoluted question I asked about um, the equivalence between Steamrail and you guys with some of the contract brewers in, in, in the middle. Do you, do you see that there you know, breweries that uh, you know, contract out um, substantial parts of their production to, to the same facility that we're seeing uh, some of the, the big, you know, uh, industrial isn't the right word, but some of the bigger, more corporatized brands coming from. is It's going to be you know, increasingly difficult for them to maintain value in, in, in their brand? Um, look, look I, guess, I guess there is a challenge there. Um, and at the end of the day, that's a decision. Contracting out your beer is a decision based on what's right for, the, right for those brewers. And, you know, We've looked at that decision over the years, and and for us, um, there's a number of reasons why we haven't done it. One is um, we just believe in the fact that if we can, it's going to have a stonewood name in it, on it. It's going to be brewed by us, um, so there is an element of control uh, on that. Certainly, um, there's probably also um, some certainty around sourcing the product is another reason. So you know, it's all well and good for someone else to brew your beer. But they're also brewing their own beer and a lot of other people's beer. So come and beer's a seasonal uh, industry. So come Christmas, you're in a queue to get access to that production capacity. Um, so that's that's another that's another key factor. I think the other one is that yes, most of the contract brewers in the country today have their own brands. And uh, from Stone and Wood's perspective, um, we look at that and go, well, the last thing they really want to be doing is brewing someone else's beer then. That's just that's just the way I look at it. If you if you've got a brewery in your own your own brand, then logic and good business sense would say you want to sell as much of your beer as your you can that you own. Um, so that's from we look at that and go well that's not really the great way to start a relationship uh, with one of your suppliers. Is the last thing they want to be doing is actually doing something for you. Um, and I guess the third thing is that there's you know. Um, I guess it comes down to you know our brand is very much a provenance brand, um, but 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 it's also very much about being the regional brewer and supporting the local community, um, and that's that's where we saw value investing in the local market uh, by building a brewery, a bigger brewery in the local market, is that it's actually giving back to the community that supported us to help us get to the point where we needed a bigger brewery. I've got a perhaps a, a simple one for you. Uh, it was seven years ago, I think, that Stone and Wood first kicked off and back then I think there might have been 120 or 130 uh, brewers in the country. We're just about to hit 300. What happens, do you think, in the next five years or so? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, Pete. Um, I think if you look at if you look at the per capita, the number of breweries per capita in the US and then look at that here, I think the number is close to sort of 350 or something, I think. If you actually do the maths, 
Um, so certainly, yeah, somewhere towards 350 or so, uh, I think I think we start to reach a point where the US are now. Um, I think it could continue. Um, there is certainly uh, the risks around sustainability, and I, and I think what what's underlying some of Matt's questioning and remarks there around um, sustainability and pricing, etc., comes down to you know I think I think I think more the fact that competition amongst the small brewers is going to get tougher, um, and that's 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 where I think the challenge will be as the as the market gets. Um, certainly more diverse. Um, so yeah, I think I think I think the the amount of brewers out there is going to be much more challenging. People are going to be stepping on each other's toes a lot more. Um, and and yeah, I think I think there's also in Australia we do have the situation where we have international uh, imported small brewery brands um, being quite active here, and that's really just due to the fact of you talk about economies of scale. From retail brands in the marketplace, Matt, I think um, you know, seeing brands like Sierra Nevada and other bigger global craft brewers, if you like, um, who have fantastic economies of scale, uh, coming into this marketplace and competing, you know, um, I think I think that's not a bad thing. It's just the way um, you know the way the Australian marketplace is, regardless of what industry you talk about. Um, look at the car industry, you know, we, <laughs> we don't have any local manufacturers anymore. Um, but we've also also had a very diverse offer, and I think the same is with beer. We tend we tend to um, love to have a wide choice for such a small population base in most things in Australia. Um, so so yeah, I think there's going to be some there's going to be some challenges. Um, it's about growing in a sustainable way, and that's something we certainly focus on at Stone Wood. Is it's not just growth for growth's sake. Um, it's about growing in a way that, that you know Stone Wood will be around for generations to come. Um, so it's about how we grow uh, over time to do that and not, not take advantage of what's probably a massive demand, unmet demand out there at the moment, um, but just grow steadily. When people ask me about, um, you know, like what's the secret behind stone and wood, I, I think one of the things I look at is adaptability or, or flexibility, if you like, um, which I think in a lot of cases, I guess the bigger brewers, uh, the more corporate brewers, don't, you know, they don't have that flexibility necessarily. I, I remember back talking to Brad and yourself when um, the pursuit, when the draft ale first came out, and it was going to be keg only. It was going to be available at the the bar at the brewery and at you know three pubs around Byron. And now it's available just about everywhere. And you also have then the stone beer, the garden ale, the lager, and more recently you know branching out into the the beers of the world series. It, was was that a conscious decision to sort of I guess start local and, and organic and just let it grow from there. Certainly local. It was the focus from day one, and it still is. You know, um, we still focus on selling half of the beer we produce within a few hours of the brewery, um, and that's that's the way we will continue to grow. Um, so, uh, when you say it's available everywhere, it's uh, if you look at our social media feeds, um, you wouldn't say that. Um, there's <laughs> it's people all over the place. Uh, yeah. yeah, there's people all over the place that can't get a hold of our beer. And, and you know, oh, there, are, there, there are markets that, yeah, we just, because we're focusing on local first um, and making sure that the people within a couple of hours of the brewery are able to find our beer, um, yeah, we don't have enough to go around the rest of the country. Um, so, so certainly local, you know, we talk about long-term trends and consumer trends and drinkers looking for things. I think local is underlying all of the growth in this small brewery uh, industry is 
consumers across all categories looking towards local. That's that's one of the big drivers for us. Local, uh, authentic's the other one, uh, and then personal connection. Um, they're the, they're the three things I think that uh, you talk about secrets of success. Not really secrets. It's just they're they're the, they're the they're the global trends that are are really what's driving the category. The other the other the other one is flavour and people looking for diversity of flavour, but it's no more important than those other three. That's what's driving the growth in you know the smaller end of town when it comes to the brewing industry. It, it, it's interesting. I, I look at the everyone talks about a craft brewery bubble in the states, and uh, you were talking about you know 350 being around about the the equivalents there. Um, my fear, and sometimes I'm the most uh, negative uh, one in the room, but Whilst I don't think there's a craft beer bubble, um, people's tastes seem to be ever increasing. Some of those competitive pressures uh, around price, availability and convenience and quality are going to see pressure on the number of breweries that can uh, survive that market. And I, I look at every other industry that goes through a bit of a boom um, and their business cycles are longer or shorter, but uh, you see a whole lot of coffee shops opening um, and they seem to sort of come and go quite quickly as, as small operators who are trying to compete against the chains really struggle um, and it's the smaller ones with a strong brand that are able to get scale um, and therefore um, profitability that seem to survive and it's a lot of the small ones that come and go and you, you don't think those sorts of things are going to apply to, to the uh, craft uh, beer industry or craft brewing industry where we're going to see a lot of small breweries come. Um, we're going to see some prosper and then a, a lot go as they're unable to you know, get that scale and get that distribution or get that quality up, particularly once the market matures. Yeah, look, I think I think I think there is going to be. Um, you know, if you look in the US. I think you know there's about three thousand of them over there. I think um, closings last year were about four, in the mid forties, so forty five or forty six closures or something. Might have been a bit higher, might have been sixties. I can't exactly remember the number, but um, and, that, and that's just a fact of that's just a fact of any market. I think there are going to be people who enter that obviously don't have an offer right or in the wrong place at the wrong time or. Um, don't have the skills to pull it off, uh, etc. So there are going to be failings or closings. That's that's just a fact of life. Um, but those sixty have occurred at a time of a spectacular market increase. So you know, I, I would have thought that you know, going back to my property analogy, when market when property markets are forever uh, increasing in value nobody loses money and it's you know once they and so everyone starts becoming a property development people overcapitalize people make you know bad decisions and it's once it doesn't the market doesn't even have to um shrink again it's once that growth stops um that everyone is counting on that people with uh you know the the the, the weaker um, business models are going to to really struggle you, you don't think that that's a potential for the craft beer industry uh, I, I do, I and mean, I think it's, happened, it, it, it's, it's there now. I, I don't think you can use the analogy with the property market because there's only so much property in the world, therefore there's a slightly different dynamic in that market. I think you could, you could use the analogy of the restaurant industry where there's thousands and thousands of restaurants out there and there's churn every day of the year. Um, and I think that's that's uh, closer to what uh, we're facing. In because let's face it, a lot of these, um, a lot of the small brewers are very small businesses, um, and every small business, regardless of whether they're trying to operate in a booming cycle or whatever, um, is faced with the challenges around um, you know 
lack of capital, uh, unable to manage cash, um, even fast-growing businesses in in growth markets um, suffer that problem. Um, and if you don't manage it carefully, um, you wake up one day and there's no money in your bank account um, pretty quickly. Um, so I think you know there's there's a lot about people being able to build businesses that are sustainable and well managed uh, is an important part, regardless of even if, if there's a if even if you get blown along by a cyclone that is consumer demand at the moment. Um, you need to run your business well, otherwise you won't be there in 12 months. Um, mm. you know. Which, again, I guess is my... like I'm not looking at the next uh, 12 to 18 months. I guess I'm looking a little bit further down the track. Um, yep. And, and the, the restaurant industry is, you know, is a great one because we've seen... Um, you know, in, in Brisbane, and I'm not sure what it's like in uh, you know, Sydney and Melbourne, but we've seen the right, you know, a, a lot of the um, small and mid-sized restaurants have come under pressure um, from the chains that are coming in. You know, so you're seeing the grilled burgers and a whole lot of these larger chains that are representing small, you know, different um, brand values to McDonald's. Mm. In some respects, they're offering the same product but a more premium version of the product um, and small burger joints that have opened up in Brisbane uh, on, on the back of that trend have struggled and started to close in favour of some of the bigger chains and so I guess that's exactly what I was describing in, in the craft beer industry unless we do see uh, people getting scale uh, are they going to have viable businesses if uh, demand even plateaus a little bit? Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, one of the things I think is... Um probably the one twist on the restaurant analogy is that in the beer game there's um, two big restaurateurs that have 90% of the market. Um, so so um, there's a lot of beer out there's a lot of beer out there to um, be be gained from uh, the smaller operators. But but I think the other key piece is that yeah you know um, th th there is certainly a lot of hype around. Um, Around the category at the moment, and some of that hype is that is it probably the more unsustainable end of the market to some extent, um, and that's where a lot of you know I see a risk of a lot of guys jumping in to this market at the moment, starting a brewery. Um, the challenge is even though even though it's much more accessible in terms of getting tap points etc out there in the marketplace at the moment, um, is that they're trying to sell into a market where the first port of call for them is, um, you know, for the want of a better term, uh, beer-centric venues that have a broad variety of taps on offer and uh, they get their beer on tap once and then uh, it's rotated off and away it goes again. And that, that, that's the risk I see for some of the guys at the moment is how you actually do build uh, build your brand um, and loyalty to your brand in, in that environment. And also, you know, fridges in bottle shops aren't made of rubber. Um, and therefore, you know, there's only a limited number of spots on those shelves. So, yeah, certainly there's going to be some challenges at the sort of distribution part of the market. I think that's where the, that's where the real, real challenge will come in. If you, if you can't get in and build a brand that has a loyal following and can maintain space on a bar or on a shelf in a fridge, um, you, you are going to struggle. Can I finish with a Dorothy Dixer? <laughs> yeah, well, no, cause, okay, my point is that uh, when I'll go back to you know, referring it to, to it as the draft ale, when the artist formerly known as the draft ale, <laughs> Stone and Wood Pacific Ale, yep. first came out, what, everyone wanted to know what style it was. And mm. the answer was, well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not a 
beer based around style. It's more about occasion and and um, sociability and drinkability and all those sorts of things. It's not really you know brewed to a style. Yep. So I've noticed that uh, Dan Murphy's in the last couple of weeks have rearranged their uh, their beer section, and they've now put um, all their beers. Uh, they've stacked them by style. So here's my question to you: Where does where does Stone? What in which section does Stone and Wood Pacific Ale sit? Oh, that's up to them. <laughs> well, no, it's a trick question because they don't stock it. <laughs> yeah, well, they do in New South Wales. Um, oh, do they? Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Oh, there we go. Um, so, so where does it sit? Um, look, I think I think they probably put it um, in the sort of Golden Ale area or wherever wherever wherever, wherever they wherever they want to put it. I, you know, I, I think um, styles, beer styles are good uh, to some extent because it helps uh, drinkers navigate the category. Um, so I think that decision by Dan Murphy is a good one. They do it with their wine. Um, well, they used to. Um, so I think that does help people navigate the category. Um, and, you know, part of what we did with Beers of the Earth was about um, introducing some of our drinkers to beer styles they'd probably never ran into before. And you know, I think, you know, that's a... It's a good way for people to understand the category and learn more about beer. Uh, yeah, but Pacific Ale doesn't really have a pigeonhole as such. Um, so, yes, n- knowing knowing retailers, I'll put it somewhere close to uh, a product that sells, you know, or is close, really related to it from a sales perspective. Well, Jamie, I, I guess uh, the, the the one big question uh, that I'd like to finish on is, you know, uh, if you've got your crystal ball handy, where do you see, uh, you know, craft beer in, in, in Australia in five years' time, uh, in percentage terms, in popular style terms, however you see it? Yeah, well, I, I, think, I think at the moment, you know, if you, if, you, if you wanted to pluck a number out of there in terms of where craft beer, and depending on your definition of craft beer, if you want to measure the size of the market, um, but if you included brands like Squires, Matilda Bay and Little Creatures and White Rabbit, etc., in that mix, which I think most people do these days when they talk about the category, um, it's around about that 75 to 80 million litres, um, which I think puts it roughly around sort of uh, four and a bit percent of the market. Um, I, I can see that growing to closer to 10 percent in Australia in the next five years, um, so doubling. Um, the challenge we have as an industry is that those brands I just mentioned uh, that are owned by the larger brewers um, have a better chance of growing with and probably faster than the market because they have the production capacity to do so and take up the opportunity uh, that is in front of all of us um, as consumers continue to look for um, diversity of flavour and different beers, etc. So um, I think the challenge is, and one of the things that uh, it's great to see the CBIA at their conference this year, looking at um, how we're going to fund that growth as a as a group of small brewers, because you know if we're going to double from 85 to 160 odd million litres or whatever, there's about 85 million dollars worth of capital investment required to produce that sort of volume, and. Um, that's a lot of money to be sourced from somewhere for for a lot of small breweries. So um, that's 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 the big challenge we face is actually uh, having having the ability to grow in line with the market and keep up with those larger brewers. Because if you backed out the big corporate brewers um, in inverted commas craft brands, you know, um, if you wanted to use a, a brewers association definition or a 
CBU or UBC, whatever it was in the UK's definition, you're probably you're probably talking about one and a half percent of the actual market, not five. Once you get to a brewery the size of Stone and Wood, for example, and, and looking at that growth and the, the capital investment um, is the element of your answer that I'm sort of looking at. Can you get to uh, the, the size that you guys are now and so say, well, look, that's sustainable for us. We the the, the founders can make an income off it. We uh, can pay our uh, any other investors a, uh, a dividend, and we've got a nice little business that we can just sort of sit here and uh, you know keep going. Or do you need to keep growing in order to uh, stay relevant and stay in the market? Uh, well, we certainly don't need to keep growing. Um, uh, certainly, you know, um, a business of our size, yes, it, it, it's at a it's at a it's at a happy place, I guess. You know. Um, and yeah, um, the three of us going into the business, you know, we had three families to feed. So from day one, we knew we had to get to a certain scale for that happy place um, to be happy. <laughs> um, otherwise, there were some very hungry kids floating around the place. Um, but, uh, and Brad's got a few of them. Yeah, exactly. He's got more than his fair share of them. Um, <laughs> or cheap so, workers for the brewery. <laughs> <laughs> so certainly, you know, getting to a scale was important to us. But that that scale, uh, that 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 point for us was probably just before we um, upgraded to Moolumbah. So, but so we needed to move to Moolumbah not so much to be sustainable at that current at that volume we were doing then, but it was more actually to actually be able to produce that volume in a safe, sustainable way. Um, you know, it was not having tanks squeezed into bulging out of a little tin shed and having guys tripping over each other, and you know, just just wasn't sustainable doing that. So getting some space to be able to produce that volume um, more sustainably was important. Um, and as you know, I think you talked about with Brad on uh, on the podcast a few weeks back, you know, yeah, we, we made the decision to increase our capacity, which got sucked up relatively quickly. Um, but, you know, this. But as we go forward, we'll, we'll, we'll grow at a steady pace. It's not about growth for growth's sake, as I said earlier. It's about growing in a sustainable way and... Um, Therefore, you know, we're setting it up for a long-term business. You need you need to have that sustainable base to work from. And um, I guess, you know, looking forward with a crystal ball, yeah, you know, hoping the market's going to continue to double. But um, but I think, yeah, you need to also understand that as that market grows, it's going to be more competitive. And uh, therefore, you need to look at your your fixed cost base and make sure that um, you know if there are some what's the what's the cool terminology they use in business world these days, the headwinds are, you know, if we hit hard headwinds, um, then, yeah, we may need to we may need to bunk it down a bit and we need to structure the, the cost base of the business in a way that it can sustain that. But, yeah, it is certainly about making sure that the business has a, you know, the, that, it, that it's comfortable um, and, and the team and the, all the shareholders, including our team members who are shareholders, um, get some benefit out of that. Jamie Cook, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. Thank you. Thanks for having us, guys. In a garden, what a garden. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. 
And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. There you go, Prof. We covered a lot of ground with Jamie there. Yeah, and always interesting. The only thing better than um, having a chat to Jamie is having a chat over a beer with Jamie. They're very, they're very, very similar chats, but just um, the beer just sort of makes it even sweeter. Yeah, and also when there's not a microscope, uh, microphone uh, running, um, yeah. and, and you can sort of be a little bit more uh, frank and forward. But look, he, he's he is one of the thinkers in the Australian beer industry, and uh, it's, it's always interesting to get his perspective. Um, and uh, yeah. Prof, uh, I, I'm left coming away with that, thinking that I'm sort of the great naysayer of uh, the, the beer industry at the moment. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if you wanted validation or, uh, oh, no, no, you're not. <laughs> Someone's got to be. Yeah, I mean, what, what's your view about the Australian craft beer market? You've heard Jamie's, you've heard the, the questions that probably, you know, my questions that belie a little bit about my fears for the industry and uh, some of the devaluation that can occur if, if things go as they are. I just figure the beer's been around 5,000 years. We're not going to kill it in the, in, in the next 10. Um, I can see probably that some of the players in the market will need to either, like Stone and Wood did, focus on very much on their... Uh, on their local market. I, I see some breweries automatically wanting to get into uh, other states or wanting to start looking at uh, overseas distribution. And I think we need to, uh, you know, crawl before we can walk and walk before we can run. Um, and, and I guess if you've got a quality is number one and number two and number three, followed by number four will be your, your branding and your, and your marketing and sustainability and all those sorts of things. But I think if you get all the, all the pieces in place, the, the market will soon sort out. If your, if your beer is good enough, then, you should be okay. So as good a note as any to leave it on, Prof. Always good to, to chat. Um, we can get you at Beer Blokes on Twitter. On Twitter and uh, Pete Mitchum at, uh, on Facebook. And I am Good Beer Matt on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And we are Australian Brews News, which you'll find on Facebook at Brews News. Thanks very much for joining us. As always, beer is a conversation. Let us know what you think about the topics that we've uh, canvassed today. Uh, let us know what you think of the state of the beer and uh, what some of the great dangers for the beer industry are going forward. Um, and we look forward to joining you again next week uh, for another episode of Radio Brews News. Let's strike up the band, Prof. Talk soon. See you, Matt. See you, listeners. Roll out the barrel. We'll have a barrel of fun. Roll out the barrel. We've got the blues on the run. Sing boom to rara. Sing out a song of good cheer. And we're out.